0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, back in 2010, Chris Paulette, my original co host, and I did a short episode about the video game crash of 1983. But I think we fell into some traps that a lot of people fall into when they talk about that. And I figured that we could probably go back to a deeper dive in this episode and learn about how that all happened. Now, the super short version of the story is that here in the United States, the home video game market went into a recession after it became oversaturated Uh, It was built on a faulty business model, or really a a faulty distribution model, which we'll talk about. Uh, Investors lost confidence in the companies involved, and the entire industry, mostly concentrated in a single company, collapsed under its own weight. Now, some people give an even shorter version, effectively blaming a pair of Atari cartridges for the whole thing, but as we'll see, that ends up being a little bit reductive. But 1983 seemed like it would have been a great year for games. I mean, if you look at the arcades, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, both video games with full hand-drawn animation from Don Bluth, stored on Laserdisc, they made a big splash that year. Uh, this was despite the fact that player interaction in those games is just limited to responding to timed events and pushing on a joystick in a particular direction or hitting a button. Um, but you're not controlling animated characters the entire time. It's literally like, oh, the screen flashed, push left. Uh, The Star Wars arcade machine also came out in 1983. That one had vector color graphics and lines from the movie. Uh, By the way, that game remains one of my favorite arcade games of all time. Likewise, Spy Hunter, another game that I consider a top arcade game of all time. That one came out in 1983. That's a game where you control a car uh, you have an overhead view. You're controlling a car that goes down a highway, and the car's got like all these spy gadgets kitted out into it, or it can get them by, you know, docking with a, a, uh, a, a, a semi truck that's also on the road, and you have to shoot bad guys and stuff. Super cool game, and a lot of other big titles came out that year, like Discs of Tron, Elevator Action, uh, Junior Pac-Man, and Crawl. Okay, so that last one wasn't exactly a classic arcade game, but it was an arcade tie-in with a science fiction fantasy film that I've got a soft spot for. All right, so we can't just jump into 1983 or even 1982 and expect to have a full understanding of what led to the industry crash. We really need to understand how this all got started in the first place. So we're going to do a quick overview of the birth and evolution of video games, both for home consoles and for the arcades, because they are tied together somewhat. Um, And also, arcades were a thing, too, once upon a time, just in case you weren't aware. I mean, there are some arcades still in existence, particularly outside the United States, and you've got your stuff like Dave & Buster's and whatever, but it's not like the old days. Insert old time and music here. Now, before... Even the old days, there was a physicist named William Higginbotham, Uh, and this cat was an interesting fellow. For one thing, he was a scientist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory during World War II and was part of the group that developed the atomic bomb. He worked on the electronics side of things, you know, rather than the stuff-what-goes-boom side of things. But of course, all these groups were working together with a common goal in mind. Anyway, he was part of the team that brought upon us the era of nuclear weapons. He also campaigned hard for the world to, you know, not go ham on nuclear weapons and build them all over the place. Also, I should point out that it's not like the United States was the only country working toward nuclear weapons, and I don't mean to suggest that if the U.S. hadn't developed the atomic bomb, no one else would have done it. Uh, that surely would have happened. It's just, that's how history played out. All right, so let's get back to the video games though. So Higginbotham goes to work for the Brookhaven National Laboratory after the war. And he worked in a department called Instrumentation. And this department built various cathode ray tube or CRT displays intended for radar systems. Well, in 1958, he's told he's gonna create an exhibit to show off to people whenever they're touring the lab, and he's like, we use systems to display stuff on screens. It's not very exciting. I mean, it's, it's radar systems, and unless you've got something to pick up, it's you're just looking at a screen. So he gets an idea. See, the team was using oscilloscopes, and oscilloscopes are used to display waveforms of various signals. Uh, so an oscilloscope can show stuff like a signal's frequency and amplitude, among other things. And most importantly for this podcast, It can plot curved lines, and when paired with an analog computer that Higginbotham's department had, it gave the physicist a chance to design a very simple tennis game. A technician named Robert Dvorak took Higginbotham's plans and built the exhibit, and Higginbotham called it Tennis for Two. This was in 1958. That's more than a decade before we'd see a refined version of this called Pong. Pong but the game was different from pong in other ways as well. So pong uses a top down view for the table tennis game. Players take control of bars that act kind of like paddles or rackets. Typically they're taking control on the left and right sides of the screen and it's like you're looking down on top of a uh, of a table tennis board. And you you move these these bars, these paddles up and down the screen on your side in order to hit a ball back and forth. Uh, When the ball encounters either the top or bottom edge of the screen, it bounces off and heads toward, you know, whichever direction it was going. But Tennis for Two only had two lines in it. It had a line along the bottom of the screen, which represented the ground, and halfway across the length of this line was a short vertical line extending up. So this represented the net. So it's like you're looking at a tennis court in profile. Players had a dial, which allowed them to set the angle of the ball, and then a button, and you would push the button when the ball entered your side of the court, and you would use the dial to set the angle of your strike. There were no paddles or anything like that on the screen. Uh, Higginbotham didn't really do anything else with this idea. It was just kind of to demonstrate the technology, and even though it got a lot of attention, he didn't really see any application for it beyond that. Now, you could argue this was the first video game, but it was never a commercial product. But flash forward to the 1960s. An engineer named Ralph Bayer was working for a company called Sanders Associates Incorporated. He was exploring how the company might make a companion technology for the television, which had proven to be quite popular by the 1960s. So the idea was that most folks already had a TV. And so creating something that could expand the capabilities of a TV would tap into a pre-existing market, a market that already was proven to have spent money on a appliance as expensive as a television. So Bayer and two Bills, Bill Rush and Bill Harrison, began developing a box you could connect to a television that would allow you to play games on the TV. And the engineers built a few prototypes, and we typically referred to them as the brown boxes because they were covered in a veneer that made them look like they were made out of wood, They created a version of table tennis that used controllers with three knobs and a button on them. The knobs or or dials uh, controlled the paddles and the ball itself, in fact. So one dial was to control the horizontal movement of a paddle. And remember, this is a, a, a table tennis that you're looking at either the left side or the right side of the screen. So by controlling your horizontal movement, you can move closer to or further away from the net in the center or the center line. And then the second dial controlled the vertical movement of the paddle. So that lets you move up and down in order to intercept the ball before it would pass you and go beyond your side. And then the third dial would actually control the movement of the ball itself. So once your paddle had hit the ball, you could use this third dial to put quote unquote English on the ball after you'd already hit it. So not really realistic, but you could control the path of the ball by turning this dial. So you can make it go up or down or you can make it go up and down really fast as you're heading toward the other side in an effort to make sure your opponent can't hit it. So you could actually skew the direction of the ball as it left your paddle. Uh, If your opponent managed to hit the ball, well, then you would no longer be able to control its movement. You wouldn't want to anyway, because you would be, you know, focusing too much on trying to make sure you move your paddle in the right spot to intercept the returning ball. So Sanders Associates filed a patent on this design and got it. And they looked for buyers, and a company called Magnavox, uh, that's a company I should cover in depth at some point, licensed this design in 1971 and began working on a consumer version of the prototype technology. And this would become the first Magnavox Odyssey console, which essentially played table tennis without being able to keep score. You had to keep score, you know, on your own. Uh, The Magnavox Odyssey came out in September 1972. Uh, The console could accept game cards. These were printed circuit boards that were kind of like a proto-cartridge. The cards modified how the console would send signals to a television and how it would interpret inputs, which gave the players a few different game types that were all mostly based off of table tennis. Magnavox even created the first video game console peripheral, For an extra charge, you could buy a light gun that you could use with some basic shooting games. Again, um, just like, you know, they would display a white square in your TV and you would aim the light gun to it, pull the trigger. And if it had detected that the white square was in the sight of the gun, then it counted as a hit. Well, the Odyssey would enjoy some modest success. Uh, Some would say it was actually a failure. Uh, It would eventually sell around 350,000 units when all was said and done, but early on, it wasn't making that much of an impact, except it would have a huge impact on the history of video games, just not necessarily on the consumer market right off the go. Because one person who saw the Magnavox Odyssey in action was Nolan Bushnell. Now, Bushnell and his partner, Ted Dabney, had created the first arcade video game in 1971, Uh, under a company that was called Syzygy. And this arcade game was called Computer Space. And in turn, this was based off a game that had been created by folks at MIT way back in 1962 called Space War. Now, I emphasized that title because the actual title has an exclamation point after the word Space War. Anyway, Computer Space was largely an adaptation of Space War, and it would become the first commercial arcade game, but it wasn't particularly successful. However, Bushnell thought there's going to be a big business in video games, and so he was convinced that they needed to stick with this kind of, uh, this market. So he goes off and then founds the company Atari, specifically with the goal of creating games that the company would then license to manufacturers. So... The original idea was that Atari would create the IP and would program a game, but then effectively sell that design to some established gaming company like Bally or Williams. Bushnell hired on an engineer named Alan Alcorn. Now, the video game world is really young at this point. Like, pretty much the only people who have made any games were engineers and programmers, who were really just trying to create fun ways to misuse company or research lab or university property. Like, they weren't making games for the general public. They were typically making games for themselves and for the folks who worked closely with them. And Alcorn had no experience in creating games. So Bushnell decided to give him the assignment of making a table tennis game, similar to the Magnavox Odyssey home console game, but this time in arcade format. So not a home console, but like an arcade cabinet that you would encounter in a place like a theater or a bar, uh, because this is in the time before arcades themselves. So this was kind of like a programming exercise for Alcorn. So Alcorn pretty much reinvents the table tennis game we saw with the Magnavox Odyssey, uh, which, again, Bushnell had actually had a chance to see in person before it was released. And, And Pong would be the result of this. Uh, he created an interesting variation on this table tennis game. Uh, for one thing, it could keep score, so you didn't have to remember it. For another, he went so far as to program the little bars that act like your paddles or your, your rackets. They actually have computationally different angled surfaces along the the front of the bar. So that's just mathematics at this point. So by that, I mean, if you were to look at them... They would be rectangular, right? They do. They wouldn't look angular. They're just they're rectangles. But mathematically, there are different sections of the bar that act like a slightly different angle of attack of a paddle. So if you hit the the ball smack dab in the middle of your um your your paddle, you would have a pretty simple deflection. If it was coming straight at you and you hit it right dead in the center, it would go straight back. Um, if it was coming at an angle, then it would bounce off at a 90-degree angle deflection. But if it hit other parts of the bar, like toward the end, then it would have a more severe deflection, a, a sharper angle. So where you hit the ball with your paddle would change the way the ball flew back towards your opponent. It was neat that he was able to mathematically do this. Anyway, Atari would choose to manufacture Pong itself rather than license it to some other company. There's this whole story about how Atari had approached a couple of different companies about the possibility of making Pong and then told each of the companies, hey, it turns out the other guys aren't interested in making this for us, which then discouraged the company. So they they backed out that that was Atari's plan because they wanted to make it themselves. But they first had to get out of this commitment that they were going to make it for some other company. So they did that. They went out and they got a line of credit in order to produce this because Atari was still a very young company, didn't have a lot of money. And manufacturing an arcade machine is expensive. You have to go through the whole manufacturing process. So this was a big risk, but it paid off. Pong would become the first commercially successful arcade game. It would also prompt Magnavox to sue Atari for patent infringement, saying, Hey, we paid for this patent, and you clearly have copied it, Uh, so what's up with that? This lawsuit would eventually get settled out of court. Now, Atari would subsequently make its own table tennis video game console, which it called, fittingly enough, Home Pong. They released that console in 1975. The original Odyssey had been on the market for a few years at that point, and Atari would sell around 150,000 units, all told. So, you know, still not a, a huge number in the grand scheme of things. Now, Pong, the arcade game, was wildly successful, and you can kind of understand why. I mean, the game is simple, so it's really easy to understand how to play, unlike, say, Computer Space, which was notoriously complicated. It only cost 25 cents to play... Pong for a session, uh, whereas home consoles were upwards of $100. And when we adjust for inflation, that's around the same as $620 today. So while the home consoles were moving okay, the arcade was doing a little bit better. Between 1972 and 1977, pretty much all the video game home consoles were focused mainly on table tennis or games that were very slight variations on table tennis. So in other words, Everything was Pong, pretty much. Like, it may not be called Pong, because that was an Atari thing, but they were all essentially Pong. So there were numerous copycats out there, and there was a massive oversaturation of first-generation consoles, and they pretty much all played Pong or some variation of that. And by 1977, that had all played out. Dozens of companies that had jumped into the market in an effort to cash in on what was seen as a craze found themselves overextended, and many of them would go out of business. And it was a tough sell. I mean, a lot of folks who were interested in video table tennis had already bought a console. And since all the consoles offered more or less what was a largely identical experience, there wasn't much reason to go out and buy another one, right? You already have a Pong machine. You don't need another one. So... Why would you shell out $100 or more to buy something that you you essentially already have? So the arcade game business wasn't in much better shape at this point. While Pong had been a high point in the arcade industry, uh, there was a real lag in innovation in the arcade space. And so the whole industry, consoles and arcade, went into a bit of a recession in 1977. But in 1978, a game would come out that would breathe new life into the arcade industry and, later on, into the home video game market. We'll find out which game that was when we come back from this short break. Okay, so there was this early glut of table tennis-based video game consoles in the early to mid-70s, and that market ultimately collapsed. By the time the dust had cleared, only a few companies were still in that market. Atari was one of them, Atari had continued making arcade machines, as well as some consoles and handheld devices as well. You probably wouldn't be surprised to learn that a lot of those still remained kind of Pong-inspired, because that game had been such a big success for Atari, it was something that the company was leaning on. Some of the other titles that were uh, that Atari was producing were racing game titles, uh, they had a couple of military games, like some games where you would control a tank or a jet fighter game, Also in 1976, Bushnell made a deal to sell Atari to Warner Communications, and he stayed on, for a short while anyway, to continue to lead Atari. But lots of other companies that tried to cash in on the video table tennis trend were not so fortunate. And once the market was saturated, you know, once pretty much all the folks who wanted one of these things had one, there was nowhere to go. Plus, the second generation of consoles were beginning to come out, and that was the real nail in the coffin And a big change with these consoles is that these were predominantly cartridge based. So instead of hardwiring games into the console itself, where the console is limited to whichever games were programmed onto the, the actual circuit boards of the console, programmers were designing games that a company would print onto a circuit board that was housed inside a cartridge. You would plug the cartridge into a console and the console could run the game. So this was kind of like if you were actually physically switching out part of a circuit board in the console every time you were playing a game. That's effectively what you were doing. The games were all written in ROM format. ROM stands for Read Only Memory. That means that a machine can only pull from the data that's stored on that cartridge. It cannot change or overwrite that data ROM memory is non-volatile, meaning the game would always exist on that cartridge unless you were to actually physically damage the cartridge itself. It is it is a physical program on a circuit board. Now, this switch to cartridges allowed companies to make consoles that could run any number of games. You just had to program it onto a ROM and have that housed in a cartridge and have it be compatible with the machine. And you were off to the races. And in the beginning, each company making a console had its own game titles, like they were producing their own games. So a few of the big consoles to come out around that time were the Kalika Vision. It was actually one of the later ones. Uh, Mattel's Intellivision, the Magnavox Odyssey 2, which was a cartridge-based ga- game console. And of course, the giant in the space, the Atari Video Computer System, or VCS, Better known to me, at least, as the Atari 2600. Now, there were other consoles as well. Uh, In fact, sometimes people cite that as one of the reasons for the video game crash. As we'll learn, not so much. And really, these four consoles were the most popular by far. And the Atari 2600 commanded the overwhelming share of the market. Um, Depending upon which source you look at, Atari would ultimately sell between 25 million and 30 million Atari 2600 units. So that's a lot, especially when you look at second place in television, which depending upon which source you're looking at, sold between two and three million units. So 25 to 30 million units for the Atari 2600, two to three million for second place, which was in television. Atari was the home video game market in, in, many respects now i should also add that the atari 2600 came out a year before the odyssey 2 two years before intellivision and five years before the ColecoVision. so it really had a head start in the market when you compare it to the others now the atari 2600 sold okay at launch it didn't it didn't do badly when it debuted in 1977 but it also was not a runaway hit it wasn't like a viral marketing sensation It retailed for just under $200. So when you adjust that for inflation, it would be more than 800 bucks today. So when you look at a console and you see that it's like $600, and you think, wow, that's expensive. Keep in mind, the Atari 2600, when it first debuted, was sold for the equivalent of $800 today. And I had one of these things. And I think about how much my parents must have had to save to give me that. Now, granted, I got mine A little later in the life cycle, it probably wasn't sold at the full $200. But still, my parents were teachers. Anyway, I don't mean to turn this into a a Jonathan realizes how many sacrifices his parents made podcast. It was expensive. And despite the cartridge approach providing, you know, way more options than what you would find with first generation consoles, it was a bit of a slow burn. I mean, you had to remember also that this was... This required a change in consumer thinking, right? Because consumers before, yeah, they were limited to whatever games were hardwired on a console, but they didn't have any other purchases to make once they bought the console unless they were getting a peripheral. Everything was in the box. But with this model, you bought the system, but then you had to buy games. You know, you had additional purchase costs on top of the system itself, Now, before the break, I alluded to an arcade game that would revive the arcade industry and subsequently really put a spark in the home video game market. That game came from a Japanese company called Taito, and it was a little game called Space Invaders. This game came out for the arcades in 1978, so the year after the VCS or 2600 came out. And it was a huge hit. And in the game, you just you shoot down blocks of aliens that are flying overhead and they scroll left and right and they drop down a line every each time they get to the edge of a screen, they descend towards you. It was a pretty simple game, but it became an instant classic. Now, the folks at Atari were paying attention, Uh, not Bushnell at this point. He had actually either been fired or he quit in 1978. How that unfolded really depends upon whom you ask, because different people have a different explanation for that. And Atari engineers were working on what was supposed to come after the Atari 2600, because when the company first launched the console in 1977, they did it with a plan to replace it with a newer piece of hardware within three years. So like when they launched the 2600 in 77, they thought in 1980, we're going to come out with the next generation of this hardware, and it'll be more powerful and have more capabilities. But things would not work out that way. See, in 1980, Atari published a 2600 port of Space Invaders. A pretty decent port. And it would go on to become the second most popular Atari 2600 game in its history. We'll talk about what was number one a little bit later. Now, people were eager to have the experience of playing Space Invaders at home. I mean, this was a game where typically you would have to go someplace like a a theater or a bar or something in order to play it. Eventually, you'd be able to go to arcades and play it. And this would really see a tight relationship form between the arcade and home markets. Console companies began to see the value in licensing popular arcade titles for home markets. And arcade game developers saw the added value of bringing in revenue by licensing their intellectual property to the video game companies. So it became kind of a a symbiotic relationship at first. (laughs) That's some foreshadowing. So starting around 1980, Atari 2600 sales start to pick up. And the folks at Warner Communications, you know, remember Warner had purchased Atari in 1976. They were encouraged by this, and it also meant that there was still life in the Atari 2600. Remember, the plan was to phase it out in 1980 and to have a new kind of hardware come on the scene. But now they were seeing more and more sales, which meant the company decided to push back plans to introduce new, more powerful consoles. Why would you spend cash to produce something new if you can still move units of something that you're already making? All right, but something else that was going on around the same time, and it's a big part of it, this was the birth of the independent developer. Now, I mentioned earlier that at first, each console company was responsible for putting out games on its system. So the Atari cartridges came from Atari. Atari was the company that both made the console and made the games. But then things changed, and they changed largely because of how Atari was conducting business under Warner Communications. For one thing, Atari wasn't paying out bonuses or royalties. You were paid a salary, and it didn't matter if the game you made flopped or if it was a huge hit. You made the same amount. So you could make a game that would make the company millions of dollars, but you wouldn't see any of that cash. Also, if you worked for Atari, the only name that was associated with any game, the name that was on the cartridge would be the company Atari's name. It didn't matter if you came up with the game idea. It didn't even matter if you coded the whole darn thing yourself. The name of the cartridge was just Atari. There was no credit to you. You weren't acknowledged at all, partly because, at least the belief was, that Atari didn't want to run the risk of losing talent to some other company. Like, if they said, oh, this game was created by so-and-so, then some other company might approach so-and-so and and say, hey, I see you like to make games. How would you like to make way more money doing it? Well, game creators weren't totally cool with this. A lot of them wanted to have more credit, or at least any credit, and Atari just wasn't keen on doing that. Plus, the folks at Warner Communications were really cost-focused, and they didn't trust video game developers. They didn't think of them as creatives. So in 1979, a group of Atari game developers, four of them, left the company to found a new one called Activision. Yeah, Activision, as in the company that's now known as part of Activision Blizzard. It all started off because a bunch of Atari game developers were fed up with how Atari was running things. They originally planned to create a company that would develop its own console, but ultimately they would develop games that would run on the Atari 2600, but they would not be made by Atari. This would eventually spawn a lawsuit in which Atari tried to make Activision stop. They were claiming that Activision was uh, infringing upon proprietary intellectual property. But eventually, the two companies reached a settlement and Activision would pay a licensing fee to Atari, but otherwise would be able to continue developing games for the Atari 2600. The talent that moved from Atari to Activision represented some of the strongest developers who had been at Atari. So now Atari was forced back a step when it came to developing games. Plus, Atari's games would compete against Activision's games, and Activision would be just the first third-party game developer to create Atari 2600 cartridges. Others would follow. One of those would be Imagic, another company that had some ex-Atari talent create their own developer company, and Imagic would launch in 1981. So now Atari was going to have to compete with other companies that were making Atari games, when before Atari was the one and only source of Atari games. This will be an important component as we move forward. Now we need to talk a bit about distribution and retail, because this would also play an enormous part in the collapse of the market in 1983. So let's talk about how retail typically works. Okay, so a retail outlet deals with either wholesalers or distributors, uh, buying either from a wholesaler or directly from a distributor or maybe directly from a source itself. But the point is the retail organization orders a certain number of units of whatever it is we're dealing with, in this case, video games. And that then becomes the stock that the retail establishment has to sell. Then the retail company marks up the price of this stuff and sells it on to the consumer. The retail store is the point of sale for the c- customer, right? And of course, the retail store has to mark up the price or else it would make no money. So, it has to sell the thing for more money than it costs for it to purchase it, to put it into its stock. That all makes sense. Now, typically, a retailer is on the hook for the units that they order. So if a consumer, you know, if the consumers don't buy enough of whatever it is we're talking about, then typically the retailer has to eat that cost. So if video games had worked this way in the 1980s, it would have been a very different story. It would have looked something like this. Let's say um, Jimmy Bob's Video Game Emporium purchases 20 copies of Activision's River Raid. And let's just say for the sake of this this example that that costs $10 a pop. So each copy is $10 for Jimmy Bob to purchase at this this, uh, arrangement. But then Jimmy Bob marks up those copies to $30 each. So Jimmy Bob spent a total of $200 buying these 20 copies of River Raid to have in stock. That means that Jimmy Bob needs to sell at least seven copies to start making money in this drastically oversimplified example. So seven copies at 30 bucks a pop, that means he would net $210. But for some reason, this here town that Jimmy Bob's in, it don't have video games with sophisticated tastes and they don't appreciate the hard work that Activision put in for River Raid. So Jimmy Bob only sells three copies. That means he brings in $90, but he spent $200 on the games he bought straight from Activision. That means Jimmy Bob is going to bed poorer but wiser. At least he would if that's how video game distribution actually worked in the old days. It didn't. See, in that case, the retailer would have to come up with other strategies, maybe trying to position games in a more inviting spot to get more people to buy them, maybe marking down the price a little bit so that they can at least break even, if not make a little bit of profit. But that's not how video game distribution worked in the early 80s. See, retailers were not super keen to carry video games that much. So companies had to make deals with these retailers in order to get their products onto store shelves. And it put a lot more of the risk on the game developers instead of the retailers. It was the cost of doing business. This was the way to convince retailers, hey, give our game systems and our cartridges shelf space in your store. Shelf space that could go to something else that you know has a proven track record. So the deal that a lot of companies agreed to was that the video game developer would provide copies to retailers. Retailers would say, here's how many copies I think I need. The video game developer would send those copies to the retailer. And the video game developer would be financially on the hook if the retailer found it impossible to move the games. They would have to take all unsold inventory back. So now the retailers didn't carry a risk, right? They would make money if they the games sold, But they would essentially get their money back if they didn't sell all the titles because they would return the titles to the video game developer and recapture costs. And so the the developer would take on the burden of games unsold. So yeah, the retailers weren't on the hook for those unsold games. This would be a key component for why the market would crash. And it put a ton of power in the hands of the retailers. And because of that, And because there was this perception that video games were the license to print money, some retailers went a bit hog wild. They drastically overestimated how many copies they would need for their titles, thinking like everyone wants video games, so we're going to order, you know, 100 copies of this thing. But then you can understand why retailers would do this too, because there was no risk, right? I mean retailer could order a hundred copies of a game. And if they only sold 10 of them, well, they could still return the other 90 to the video game company and recapture those costs. So they would not be in a, in a really bad position as long as everything held steady. So even really good popular games were a bit of a risk for game developers. Like if a retailer like Sears put in a really large order you'd have to pay to manufacture that many units of cartridges and then ship them to the retailer. And then if it turned out that Sears had drastically overestimated how many units they would actually sell, you would have to take all the excess back and figure out what to do with it. So for bigger companies like Atari and to a lesser extent Activision, this was something that they could potentially weather on a case-by-case basis. But for other companies, it would be a different story. While we saw a ton of third-party developers pop up in the Atari era, most of them wouldn't stick around for very long. The agreements with retailers would prove to be too expensive for many of those companies to navigate, and they would go bankrupt as a result. In fact, sometimes they would go bankrupt before they could take back any copies of games. We'll get to that too. But the really, really big thing that would cause the dominoes to fall happened in the winter of 1982. I'll explain more after we come back from this break. So in December, 1982, Warner Communications holds a stockholder call. So this is when companies have to report on performance to their shareholders in order to keep them up to pace with what's going on, and also to lay out projections for the following year. Well, in 1982, video games were a huge business. We're talking a multi-billion dollar industry that was dominated by Atari. And yeah, video games are a multi-billion dollar industry today, but you got to remember they were very young in the 1980s, right? Plus, When you, just for inflation, when you talk about just a few billion dollars in the early 1980s, that's many, many billions of dollars today. So Atari had been pretty darn busy. In 1982, it released the Atari 5200, which was an upgrade from the VCS slash 2600. So it boasted better graphics than the 2600. However, it also wasn't compatible with the games for the 2600, at least not initially. And it also didn't have very many games of its own to speak of because Atari had actually directed most of its game development toward the 2600 because that install base for the console was still so large. But it meant that they didn't really have games to help sell the 5200 to the public. Meanwhile, Coleco had launched the ColecoVision, which ironically could play uh, Atari 2600 games on it. So if you bought a ColecoVision, you could play old Atari 2600 titles on it. But if you bought a 5200, you couldn't. And then Intellivision launched the Intellivision 2, which was pretty much just an Intellivision 1 with a new case. And the 5200 just didn't sell anywhere close to as many units as the 2600 had. And here's where we get to some of the big issues that Warner Communications was going to have to address. One is that... By 1982, the Atari 2600 was really showing its age. The ColecoVision was more technically advanced. And of course, Atari itself had initially planned to phase out the 2600 in 1980, but then changed course once the console sales started to pick up. But the market was pretty well saturated. Most of the folks who wanted an Atari 2600 already owned one. The 5200 didn't grab hold in the market the same way, and so that was a disappointment to Atari. Meanwhile, Atari was also seeing these other developers out there, these third-party developers putting out games that were competing with Atari's own titles. So while Atari would make licensing fees from these other third-party developers, it wasn't profiting off of big sales. So if Activision were to put out a real banger and they put out a lot of bangers, Atari wouldn't see any of those profits. It would get the licensing fee, but it, you know, if River Raid sold millions of copies, none of that money was really going to Atari. So while video games in general were doing well, Atari the company wasn't performing quite where it wanted to be. And because Atari dominated the market, This meant that the industry as a whole was on shaky ground. Like, it was all kind of dependent upon Atari to some extent. Like, Activision as a company could be doing great, but if Atari were to suffer, well, Activision would as well, because you gotta be able to play the games on something, right? So, in this shareholder meeting, Warner Communications reps revealed that they had determined the profit increase for Atari would be around 10-15% to for 1983. That's great right you're seeing a profit increase well the problem was that wall street analysts had predicted that this would be closer to a 50% increase in profits so being adjusted down to 10 to 15% was a big drop the video game market seemed like it was a gold mine but you know to investors this seemed like it was an indication that the industry had already peaked and was now petering out like They were seeing this as a warning. So a lot of people, discouraged by this news, decided to dump their stock in Warner Communications. That depreciated the value of Warner's stock, and Warner's Communications saw its stock drop from $51 a share to $35 a share. The company lost hundreds of millions of dollars in value overnight. Now, at this point, Atari contributed more to Warner Communications revenue than the film division did. In fact, according to some sources, Atari was generating five times the amount of revenue than Warner Brothers movies were at that point. Now, obviously, this had a huge impact on Atari. And because Atari was almost synonymous with the home video game market, it also had a huge impact everywhere else as well. But this was still just one really big factor in the crash. Now, I should add, there were other ones that also played a part. And one was that Atari was spending a lot of money getting licenses for really popular IP, like Pac-Man. And Atari made a pretty mediocre home version of Pac-Man. It was, in some ways, technically impressive, because Atari, the 2600 was only powerful enough to show two sprites at a time. Well, Pac-Man is... Your character of Pac-Man plus four ghosts. So how do you make sure that you can show, you know, five sprites at one time? The solution was to make the ghosts flash. They were doing so at a very, very fast rate, uh, so they looked kind of of spectral, but they were flashing so that technically each of the four ghosts was only appearing for like a quarter of a second, and then collectively, you you know, through the persistence of vision, it looked like they were just there. Emulators make this problem way worse. So if you ever see an emulator version of the Atari 2600 Pac-Man game, the ghosts are flashing on and off in a very dramatic way. That wasn't the case with the actual game when it first came out. Still, it was not great. However, it sold really well. You remember when I said Space Invaders was Atari's second most popular cartridge? Guess what number one was? Yep, it was Pac Man. The game was not a flop. It was a success. No other Atari cartridge for the Atari 2600 sold more copies than Pac Man. However, retailers ordered more copies than they sold. So, retailers ordered way more copies of Pac Man because it was such a huge hit at the arcade. You know, Pac Man was the arcade game of the early 1980s, It, it spawned A crazy amount of merchandise. There was a a cartoon series. Like, it was in popular culture. It was beyond just an arcade game. This was something that was seen as like a lifestyle thing. So retailers were sure that the copies were just going to sell out all over the place. They ended up ordering way more than they needed. This meant that Atari had to take back the unsold stock. And the same is true for another title that is frequently mentioned whenever you talk about the video game crash of 1983, the infamous E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Uh, it's frequently mentioned in conversations about the as you know the worst game of all time. It's, it's often in that mix. In fact, Techstuff famously once called it that too, largely because of public perception. Um here's the thing: it's not a very good game, but it's definitely. Not the worst game of all time. I mean, for one thing, there are games that have shipped that people bought that are literally unplayable, that they are so broken you cannot play them. E.T. was not that. E.T. was playable. It's just it was also a little confusing. So it was kind of hard to figure out what you were supposed to do. It also wasn't very much fun, even when you knew what you were supposed to do. But it did work. Now, I owned a copy of it, in fact. Well, E.T. also didn't sell as many units as Atari produced. It sold like a million and a half units, but Atari made more than that. And also the licensing fee that Atari paid in order to be able to make E.T. in the first place was pretty darn steep. So that was a big expense. So Atari spent a lot of money making E.T. and then had to spend more money to take back unsold stock. And famously, Atari would toss thousands of cartridges into a landfill, which would become the subject of a documentary film many decades later. So Pac-Man and E.T. cost Atari money. Definitely. They really, they took, you know, Atari took a hit on both of those. However, E.T. and Pac-Man did not spontaneously cause the entire video game industry to crumble. There was no shortage of lousy games out there for the Atari 2600, and I'm sure that was part of the reason that folks weren't eager to buy more consoles, but that's just one piece of the puzzle as well. I have a little bit more I want to say about this, but before I get to that, let's take one last break. Okay, so we've established that Pac-Man and E.T., while certainly you know, a black mark on Atari's reputation and uh, a hit to their revenue, we're not responsible for the entire industry crashing in 1983. Uh, On a similar note, we can also mention home computers. People frequently cite home computers as being the reason why video game consoles died. That is being a little too simplistic as well. The home PC market had started in the late 1970s. Like the Apple, the original Apple computer was really just for hobbyists. The Apple II was the first one aimed at beyond just the hobbyist market. But it was fairly modest early on. Some folks point to computers as being the reason that consoles were dying because parents were switching to computers because a computer could do way more stuff than just play games. They could potentially help a kid do homework and stuff. So they were looked at as being you know, useful and not just a diversion. And I'm sure there's an element of truth to that for at least some households, but computers were typically much more expensive than home video game consoles. And even by the mid-1980s, they were still kind of a niche market. Like, yeah, you could buy a computer instead of a home video game console system, but you'd be spending $500 to $700 more in 1980s dollars That's a significant expense. So I think they contributed to the problem that video game consoles were going through, but they were not the smoking gun. It was not that as a whole, Americans decided that video game consoles were off and now computers were the thing. I do think that the lousy games had a little bit more of an impact than computer consoles. Uh, I mean, I was a kid in the early 80s. If I ask my parents to buy a game for me, like I said, this was what I wanted for my birthday or for Christmas or something, and then I get the game and it's just plain awful. Well, that's likely to discourage my parents from buying me another game in the future, right? Like if I'm like, ugh, this is terrible and I don't even want to play it and it costs 30 bucks, probably not going to get another one anytime soon. Now, there were some awesome games out there don't get me wrong, some truly amazing games for the Atari 2600, when you take into account what the 2600 was capable of. I'm not going to say they would stand up toe to toe with Call of Duty or something, but sometimes you would just end up with rotten games because maybe you thought the name of the game sounded cool or the cover art on the box was interesting. Because remember, there was no World Wide Web back in those days. So... You were probably just buying something based upon how it looked in the store. Maybe if you were living in certain markets, you might have access to things like a trade magazine that was covering stuff like home video games. I grew up in rural Georgia. I was lucky to see magazines at all. So so that was not the case for me. Anyway, Atari went into a bit of a spiral, not just because of the recession brought on by this 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 change in investor expectations, but also due to just mismanagement within the company itself. Atari also had a true successor to the 2600 planned. This was the 7800. This would have been the truly more powerful console. It technically would have been a third generation video game console. It would have been closer to being on par with the Nintendo entertainment system that wouldn't come out in the U.S. till 1985. But before Atari could go into full production on the 7800, Warner Communications sold off the Atari home video game division to Jack Trammell, who had previously founded Commodore and had subsequently entered into a bitter feud with Commodore. Now, I've covered the story of Atari elsewhere. I've also covered the story of Commodore elsewhere. So I'm not going to go into all of that except to say that the 7800 was a casualty as a result of Atari changing hands from Warner Communications to Jack Tramiel. But the recession reached beyond Atari itself. Coleco decided to develop a home computer expansion for the ColecoVision. This one was called Atom, and they were attempting to get into the home computer market while keeping a toe in the video game industry. But Atom turned into a flop. A really expensive flop. And then Coleco got out of the the business entirely. Mattel, after the failure of the Intellivision 2, decided to extricate itself from the home video game market as well, eventually sold those assets off to other companies. And meanwhile, video game developers were going out of business left and right. A lot of companies that made super cheap games were gone first because they were a victim of that retail arrangement I mentioned earlier. Imagic had to change its plans. It had been heading for an initial public offering, or IPO. That's when a company goes from being a private company to a publicly traded company on the on a stock market. But after the Warner Communications stock took a dive, Imagic put those plans on hold, and eventually the company folded, largely also because of that retail issue. While that shareholder call could be pointed to as the inciting incident for the video game crash. It wasn't as if the market collapsed entirely overnight. It actually was drawn out over a couple of years. But the writing was on the wall. Retailers became skeptical of video games in general. Uh, after many of the questionable developers went out of business, it meant that a lot of retail companies were left holding on to stock that they couldn't send back because there was no back, right? The companies that had made those games didn't exist anymore. So that's when you started seeing retailers create these enormous bargain bins where they were selling cartridges at like a dollar each or something. And these were, a lot of these were like just the worst games, the the lowest quality stuff. Because again, the companies that had made them no longer existed. Uh, not, not a great ad for you to go out and buy them. And meanwhile, the retailers are just trying to get rid of them to, to get them out of the stores. Uh, this was... This, this created just like a bad feeling for everybody, the consumers and the, the retailers. And I would say that the video game crash really happened for a lot of these reasons. Uh, a big one was that retailer agreement. And the fact that retailers fell into the same traps that investors did. They overestimated the profit that they would make coming from these games. Uh, so overestimating the market was a big part of it. And that the retailers, as a result of getting burned by this, were less interested in carrying and promoting home video game consoles. And meanwhile, the consumers were thinking, well, really the problem here is that I want something that looks a little better. The arcades had been getting better and better. The arcade games had been getting better and better, though arcades themselves would have their own massive recession. But the home market wasn't getting better because you were still using the same old console hardware. If Atari had introduced the 7800 a year or two earlier than it did, then things probably would have been a lot different, or at least they potentially could have been a lot different. Instead, it took Nintendo coming over and introducing the Nintendo Entertainment System to revitalize the video game market here in the United States. Uh, And famously, when Nintendo did that, they would pair the NES with a robot in order to try and sell it as a toy in toy stores because toy stores were not super eager to hold video game consoles because of the issues I just said. A lot of the the problems that led to this crash were kind of self-fulfilling. It was this vicious cycle of of issues that collectively created this market collapse. So, yeah, it's a little too simplistic to say E.T. killed video games in America. That's not accurate. It was one aspect of lots of different things that collectively led to the dissolution of video games for a good two years in the United States. In other parts of the world, by the way, this was not the case. Like in Europe, in Japan, the, the video game industry didn't have this massive recession the way it did here in the States. But yeah, that is a story about the 1983 video game crash. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for topics that I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. I gotta go over to Jimmy Bob's Video Game Emporium first and return this broken copy of Pitfall.